So today we are truly in the middle, in the heart of the retreat. And in speaking with you, just acknowledging how, you know, some of you have talked about really finding your feet in the retreat, finding your seat, finding actually the benefits of the, you know, genuine continuity. And of course, this wouldn't be true for everyone. You know, there's a journey to actually finding your feet and your seat in the retreat. But I think in this middle part of the retreat, it's, it's often kind of helpful to step back a little and say, you know, and just ask of our, of our retreat, you know, is there some place I need to commit or recommit my intention, my dedication? Today might be the day you discover the joy of doing the full schedule. Today might be the day where you discover the joy of actually truly embracing a walking period from its beginning to its end. But there's always a little bit of a stretch, I think, in this path. You know, we are asked to stretch ourselves somewhat beyond what always feels, you know, comfortable or, or, or easy. And that stretch is often really not, not pushing, not striving, not neglecting oneself in any way. But really seeing where, you know, again, we establish, even if we didn't have a parallel agenda when we came into the retreat, how we can easily establish a parallel schedule, you know. And sometimes that's that way of kind of defending rather than actually protecting. It is very helpful to find joy in the practice. You know, it doesn't mean that everything is lovely or everything is easy. And yet, you know, there is something about having that kind of inner inner climate of appreciation, of receptivity, of sensitivity, of genuinely finding joy in cultivating the skillful and the awakening and, and the wholesome. And it's a curious one. I think it comes along with the work ethic that's got associated with Western practice. It's a, it's a kind of sometimes grimness. You know, it, it, it look a little grim. And a friend of mine remarked upon watching people doing walking practice and looking as if they're kind of marching to the scaffold. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually brings me to today's contemplation a little bit. <laughs> which is really the contemplation of chitta, heart, mind, the contemplation of states of mind. And again, this word chitta is used in a very, very specific way. It's really speaking about that climate of the heart, the climate of the mind, the mood of the moment, the mental state of the moment. It's what kind of underlies how we just see the world, how we see ourselves, how we see all things moment to moment. It's even somewhat different than emotion. I I mean, actually in Pali, there isn't a word for emotion, which is interesting. And it's not because people 2,500 years ago didn't have emotions. You know, they certainly did. Um, But it's because emotion is much more a compound of mental states, often associations, thoughts, bodily experience, coming together in a compound to produce a particular emotion. 
So there is always mental states within emotion. The mental states, Chit is referring to something just a wee bit simpler, this background climate. I mean, we've spoken about some of these mental states already when we've spoken about, you know, hindrances, the, the dullness, the agitated mind, you know. And it's, it's just useful to, to even just check in right now what your state of mind is. Does your mind feel spacious? Does it feel heavy? Does it feel agitated? Does it feel calm? Does it feel apprehensive? Does it feel contracted? It's really important to notice this because the, the Buddha was constantly so encouraging for us to understand how our world of experience is being constructed moment to moment. And in looking at the four ways of establishing mindfulness, one actually sees actually the role of Vedana in constructing states of mind. You know, how an unpleasant Vedana, whether it's in a thought or in a sound or a sight or the body, can play such a major role in beginning to construct a mental state of aversion or resistance or apprehension. You know, how a pleasant Vedana tone can play such a, such a big role in constructing a state of mind of excitement or, you know, uh, yes, anything of that nature. So uh, it's really important to sense this. Now, mental states or, or chitta moods, they're, they're kind of like weather and patterns, aren't they? It can change so many times in a single day. You know, you can be outside feeling pretty contracted or pretty, you know, grumpy state of mind and, you know, the sight of the deer on the hillside, you know, and suddenly, ah, oh, a different mental stage. It is, you know. You can be outside feeling pretty delighted and appreciative of the sight of the deer on the hillside, and then suddenly you hear the reversing sounds of the trucks, you know, as a different mental state. You know? So, you know, mental states are always being, you know, have a powerful relationship to how we're receiving the world of sensory impressions. Now, if you actually look at the teaching, much of the teaching is actually concerned with cultivating chitta, which is lovely. Concerned with cultivating spaciousness, calm, curiosity, peace, serenity, engagement. Concerned with cultivating the states of mind which are truly lovely. Because these are the states of mind which really support unbinding which really support letting go, which really support understanding. You know, whereas we see, and so many states of mind are truly, truly lovely. And there's a lot that are difficult. And we know these, you know, there's much in the world that can torment us. But probably nothing so much as our own state of mind. You know, because we see when the mind is really caught within a difficult mood, an unlovely mood, you know, how contracted the mind becomes, how prone we are to creating views, 
how prone we are to conclusions about ourselves and others, you know. I mean, if I've got a pretty aversive state of mind, am I going to look at the world or hear and see this world of wonderful people doing their best and, you know, appreciation? Or am I going to look at the world and see it populated by fools who are out to irk me? <laughs> so our state of mind is constantly influencing our 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 view, our perception, and it makes us very, very prone to stickiness, to conclusions, to self-views, to assumptions, to judgment, and, of course, behavior. Because you can see if the state of mind is very agitated. You know, the, almost the, the behavioral aspect of that, well, first of all, there's the cognitive aspect of agitation, which you know is a lot of speediness, a lot of busyness in the mind, a lot of productivity. But often, very often, there's also a behavioral aspect, isn't there? We get busy. We find a thousand things to do. You know, the body can't be still. The whole world looks agitated. If the mind is very aversive, you know, we'll be more prone to, to avoidance, to pushing things away, to resistance. So it's really looking at how the state of mind so shapes our thought patterns, our cognitions, so shapes our views, and so shapes our behavioral aspect. And this actually is our world of the moment. It's our world of the moment. It's constructed. It's a process that's being constructed. The Buddha was so, so uh, encouraging for us to be able to trace that process of construction, not in the realm of good or bad or right or wrong, but certainly in the realm of what leads to suffering and what leads to the end of suffering. So this is a curiosity. This is an investigation. One thing you will notice is that the states of mind that are more unskillful, unhelpful, aversion, anxiety, apprehension, agitation, they are very productive in terms of thought. They generate far more narrative. And the narrative, of course, feeds back to the state of mind. You will notice when the mind state or the mood is far more skillful, helpful, calm, spaciousness, ease, it's not so much narrative not so much story, you know. You sit with a mind that's spacious, you know. You don't have this big, you know, proliferation of, oh, spaciousness, I wonder what that's all about, where does that come, what am I going to do with this, you know, blah, 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 blah. It's, ah, spaciousness. There's a sense of ease within it. It is very worthwhile in the day just taking some moments to pause and to ask, what is the state of mind? What is the mood of this moment? knowing that it's flavoring everything, flavoring perception, flavoring uh, constructions, flavoring views, flavoring behaviors. Now, there is a kind of closed feedback loop that gets set up, isn't there? Because particularly if there's a more difficult state of mind, then there's all that thought generation, and that turns back to deepen and, and, and solidify the state of mind, isn't it? If I'm very aversive, and I'm going to have a lot of aversive thinking. Do I get less aversive? No. I get more aversive. 
And then as that mental state deepens it again, it produces more thoughts. And that's when we feel like we get really caught within these closed rooms, you know, these, these repetitive cycles, these closed feedback loops of obsession that go round and round and round. It's this interface between mental state and thought and thought and mental state. And, and of course, the body also gets really implicated in this too, doesn't it? You start to feel the body contracting, or you start to feel the body becoming agitated. And of course, in this closed feedback loop, something else gets added to it, which actually increases the toxicity of that closed feedback loop, which is self-view. You know, with the deepening of that, we become more and more convinced, you know, I'm an agitated person. You know, I'm an aversive person. You know, I'm an anxious person. Where has that view come from? Where do any of our views of self actually come from? They come from this construction and this identification with the mental state and the thoughts that are being proliferated and generated. So it's really important to, in examining, you know, and you know, it's very easy to have self-views, by the way, and we're much more prone to have negative self-views than positive ones. Just to notice that's a kind of how, you know, the mind is hardwired to dwell upon the imperfect. The brain is hardwired to be hyper alert to what is wrong. But that is where these self-views arise, and it's so important for us to examine those self-views rather than to increase their authority by repeating them. You know, if you want to paint yourself into a corner, just keep repeating something. You know, and repeating self-view, I am this. You know, I am this kind of person. And to look even how that, you know, can be so subtle and you know, it's actually so familiar that we hardly even notice it anymore. It's just become the, the kind of abode, or the identity of selfing. So what we do in the practice, you know, and this is not a kind of busyness, this is not a project, but in the light of sati, in the light of calmness, we begin to be more and more clear about how these worlds of the moment are being generated, are being constructed, are being solidified, because that is the unbinding power, is sati. You know, we, can, we don't get rid of self-use because we don't like them. You know, we don't get rid of difficult mental states through pushing them away. Sati is the power of unbinding, sati along with investigation. So this is not a kind of intellectual ex- exercise, it's very much an experiential exercise. So as we begin to see these world constructions moment to moment, we start to develop more of an emotional literacy. This is good, emotional literacy, or it's, it's not even the right word, but uh, literacy about chitta, you know? Just being able to know, ah, sadness is happening, or anxiety is happening, or agitation is happening, apprehension is is happening, or contractedness is happening, just beginning to be able to actually frame what is going on rather than this confusion of just being lost, you know. Ah, that's the chitta of the moment. That's actually the chitta of the moment. 
So developing that, the Buddha put a lot, you know, I spoke about protective mindfulness the other day. And the Buddha put a lot of emphasis upon wise discernment. You know, so mindfulness is not just kind of occupying some back row in the theater, you know, and passively watching this, this tragedy unfold. <laughs> it's not about just being a spectator upon our own disasters. You know, sati becomes the ground for the engagement of wise and skillful effort and discernment. But discernment is key in wise and skillful effort to actually discern what is helpful and what is unhelpful in those chittas. What leads to further confusion and distress and what leads to the end of confusion and distress. And this is the protective aspect of sati. You know, I'm the guardian of my heart. You know, sati is the guardian of my mind. I know what it is helpful to welcome, and I know what it is to helpful not to feed. And we can be sure chittas, mental states, are fed through dwelling and through thought, and what we feed will grow. And so there's that aspect of sati, of actually where it engages with wise effort, if I see the world beginning to be constructed in an unhelpful way, perhaps I come back to the body. Perhaps I come back to seeing wholeheartedly. But I learn not to feed the difficult mental states because they surely will grow. It's actually part of that discernment is learning to pick up the clues of some of these states of mind that arise that are actually generating a world. You know, sometimes the clues are in the body. You know, if I find myself rushing around the site, you know, filled with projects and agendas, you know, it's a pretty big clue that there is a mental state going on. You know, if I find myself, you know, moving through the day and I've got some judgment about everything, probably a clue, you know, that there's some aversion happening. So learning and actually coming to the body to know chitta through the body is actually helpful in stepping out of the, the agitation of the difficult chittas. It's really a question about what is being practiced. Like last night I mentioned, you know, in every moment we're practicing something. And we're either going to be practicing something quite intentionally and consciously, or we're going to be practicing something quite habitually and impulsively. So it's looking at those, those shifts in our day from intention to habit, from habit to intention. Because none of the, you know, habit's not a terminal condition. It, it, you know, it, it's really looking at what is being practiced in the moment. It's asking ourselves, what is, what is it helpful for us to cultivate in this moment? You know, it's not like you can decide to have a certain mental state or a mood. You've got the one you've got right now. But how are you going to practice in the midst of that mental state? Clearly, when the Buddha speaks about chitta, just as, as he speaks about Vedana and just about he speaks about the body, there is always the kind of that first line to know chitta as chitta. That kind of encouragement towards non-identification. 
not this is who I am. This is my mind. This is my mood. To know a mental state as a mental state. Loosening that grip of identification. Everything we've been, certainly, you know, all of the lessons we learn within the body, within mindfulness of the body, really are developing the skills that allow us to approach this territory that often feels far more inaccessible, you know, or far more complex. And we're learning actually to unpack that complexity through non-identification, through the literacy of knowing what is going on, through knowing what is helpful to cultivate and what is helpful not to cultivate through not being caught within the thoughts that keep feeding the mental states, being able to step into the body, being able to step into that mindfulness established within the body and established within this moment. Okay, so taking our seat once more. In an intentional posture, being aware of your back and your neck in this moment. And bringing forth that intention, that dedication, that resolve to cultivate a present moment recollection. A present moment abiding in this body, in this moment. Sensing what the mood or the mind state at the moment is. And how that is registering in your body. Are there ways that dullness or contractedness or agitation is registering in your body? How can that be responded to? Noticing if there's spaciousness or calm or ease how that too may be registering in the body. Noticing the thoughts that are present just now. The images And if in any way they are reflecting a mood or a mental state,
mindful of the quality of our attention. If we bring our attention to listening, if that listening is flavored by a mood or a mental state, the lovely or the unlovely, establishing that anchor of mindfulness within the body, within this present moment, making a commitment to that. And also an attitudinal commitment of kindness, of care.
This is just a very short reading from the Satipatthana Sutta to inspire you throughout the day today. Whether going out or returning, the yogini acts with full attention. Whether looking ahead or looking around, she acts with full attention. Whether bending an arm or straightening it, she acts with full attention. In taking one's overrobe, bowl, and spare underrobe, the yogini acts with full attention. Whether defecating or urinating, she acts with full attention. Whether walking, standing, or sitting, whether resting or awake, whether talking or silent, she acts with full attention. So this is the practice throughout the day today is whatever it is that you're engaged in to be present for it, to be awake for it. As Christina pointed out, it is the middle of the retreat. And we can relate to this in different ways. There can be a kind of pressure. I've got to get something done. The retreat's going to be over. Or, oh, you know, I have lots of time, so I can kind of um, just loll around. These are just ideas and concepts and attitudes. The question is, can we be present throughout the day from moment to moment, whatever it is that may be happening? The action's changing, but the attentiveness, the awareness remaining the same so that there's a, a seamlessness about the whole thing. And so that we are using energy well. I used to um, get dharma on my electric bill on the outside of the envelope. There was a little saying. It would say, please use energy wisely. (laughs) It was great every month. Ah, please use energy wisely. So, you know, at this point in the retreat, I was talking about this a little bit last night, too, if you wanted to stay up and continue to practice uh, without having to go to bed at 9.15. But um, you know, sometimes a little bit more energy is available at this point. Maybe not, but maybe so. And if so, to funnel it back into the practice. You know, Not to use it for planning or fantasizing or um, ideas about what may happen or could happen or this kind of thing, but to see if you can keep funneling it back into the practice because that will be the best use of your life and it will be the best use of your time here. So just to see how that might be possible for you to do throughout the day, really encouraging a great steadiness, a great steadiness and aligning yourself with whatever your deepest of aspirations and intentions may be. If you practice in this way, it doesn't really matter what happens, doesn't really matter what goes on, you'll have a wonderful day. So, uh, just to remind you that interview groups continue today, and if you didn't have one yesterday, we're really used to people forgetting to look on the on the sheet for their name. So, if you didn't have one yesterday, to make sure you check the list today to find your name for today. And then, of course, if you don't have one today, you'll have one tomorrow. All right, so enjoy the moment. And then the moment. And then the moment. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.